the National Archives podcast series, The First Afghan War, Lessons for Today, presented by Jules Stewart. I think I can start by, by explaining that when I began writing my last book, Crimson Snow, it wasn't my intention to draw parallels with the situation today in Afghanistan or indeed in Iraq. But the deeper I got into my research, the more it became apparent that we don't always learn from our mistakes. Here's a bit of the background. Let me give you a map. I haven't got a pointer, but you can see Herat up in the left-hand corner. In the late 1830s, the Persians, who were supported by Russians, Russian troops in fact, were laying siege to Herat. Now this event set off alarm bells in Calcutta as well as in Whitehall. Russia's expansion to the river Oxus brought the Tsar's armies to the northern and western frontiers of Afghanistan. So, all eyes were on the poorly defended borders of this country, a land, I might add, that was as politically fragmented in the 19th century as it is today. So the stakes in the great game had suddenly been ratcheted up. No longer could this confrontation be played out as a race to capture commercial markets of Central Asia, even though the British continued to cloak their ambitions under the guise of commercial interests. For Britain, the specter of Cossack cavalry patrols along the banks of the Oxus was the stuff of nightmares. Alexander Burns was a key player in the great game intrigue of this period. This intrepid Scots uh, traveller arrived in India at the height of the anti-Russian hysteria. The Governor-General of the time, Lord Auckland, was casting about for a trustworthy agent to lead a commercial mission, commercial in inverted commas, to Afghanistan, and this man was Alexander Burns. The real objective was to secure the allegiance of the Amir, Dost Mohammed, to counter the perceived Russian menace. Now, it was no secret that Herat and its surrounding territories were all the great roads converge on India. The historian, John Kay, who was a great game contemporary, pointed out that it might be possible for a light column to force a passage across the Hindu Kush, but he said, it's only by the Herat route that a really formidable, well-equipped army could make its way upon the Indian frontier from the regions of the northwest. Both the nature and the resources of the country are such as to favor the success of the invader. The final straw for the government came in 1837. That was when a young Cossack officer named Jan Vikovic, who was actually, I think, Lithuanian, but he was a Cossack officer, was sent to Kabul to negotiate a treaty with Dost Mohammed. When the news of Vikovic's mission reached the government, Auckland panicked, and shortly thereafter he dispatched the, the rather grandly named Army of the Indus to oust Dost Mohammed and put his own protege, Shah Shuja, on the throne. He did this in spite of the fact that Dost Mohammed, every step of the way, proclaimed himself a friend of British India. There was no reason, in fact, to doubt his sincerity, even if it came I mean, strictly out of, out, out of self-interest, of course. The Amir knew that he had everything to gain by uh, forging a strategic alliance with Britain, uh, since this was the only power that could protect him from the Persians to the west and the Sikhs on his eastern border. Auckland, of course, in those days, couldn't keep up with the day-to-day progress of the siege. But Herat lies roughly five to 600 miles from Simla. The Shah, who was threatened, the Shah of Persia, uh, with British military invention, 
Palmerston dispatched the gunboats to the Persian Gulf, and he raised the siege in 1838, got on his horse, and went back to Tehran. That was the end of the siege of Herat. Now, that itself could easily have been relayed to Auckland before October, when he issued the infamous Simla Manifesto. This was a kind of, and here we see the relationship, kind of dodgy dossier, if you like, which was used to justify the invasion of Afghanistan. At the same time, the Russian mission to Kabul uh, was such an outstanding failure that Vikovic returned home and put a revolver to his head. Uh, this fact was reported, this event was reported to Auckland, but the wheels had been set in motion and nothing was done to halt the expedition. The campaign was launched without a shred of evidence to support the fears of a Russian invasion. Uh, John Kane, the historian, takes the view of the similar manifesto. If it were not pronounced to be a collection of absolute falsehoods, it was described as a most disingenuous distortion of the truth. And then we have Sir Henry Marion Durand, a soldier who blew up in the gates of Ghazni on the invasion of Afghanistan. Another contemporary with some strong views on this document. He said, in this proclamation, the words justice and necessity and the terms frontier and security of the British crown and national defense were applied in a manner for which there is fortunately no precedent in the English language. All scruples at first entertained by the government had now been swept away. As for the invasion itself, Durand had this to say, never before during the history of British power in India had so wild, ill-considered, and adventurous a scheme of far distant aggression been entertained. So this was a war waged on the basis of misinformation and against the advice of no lesser military authority than the Duke of Wellington. So here, if you like, we have the Russians cast as weapons of mass destruction. Uh, this is something that Kay, his thoughts on the um, similar manifesto. The force was the Army of the Indus was the largest Britain had ever put into the field in India. 21,000 troops, uh, 38,000 Indian servants, around 30,000 camels, and the 16th Lancers pack of foxhounds. Now, presumably, if they encountered any resistance, they would set the dogs on them. The campaign was a walkover, in fact, nearly a walkover, and it was dubbed the military promenade. The troops quickly took Kandahar, then Ghazni with a bit more difficulty, and then they carried on to Kabul. No one suspected at the time that the army was, in fact, marching to its doom. Burns rode in the vanguard, Alexander Burns, of the force that entered Kabul with great pomp and splendor, where he was received at the Jalalabad gate by a body of Afghan cavalry. He took note of the silence that prevailed as the army rode through the streets, but like almost everyone else, he was living in denial. The similar manifesto clearly stated that once Shah Shuja was secured in power, and the independence and integrity of Afghanistan established, the British army would be withdrawn. It was equally clear that Shuja, after he was installed in Kabul's Balahissa fortress, was neither secure in power, nor did Afghanistan bear any resemblance to a settled state. So after the frosty reception that he received on his return to Kabul, and with the fugitive Dost Muhammad rallying his men in the hills, no one had any faith in the new Amir's ability to retain power without the support of British bayonets. So Shah Shuja was placed on the throne, and the army settled into their indefensible cantonments, which were sited two miles from the almost impregnable Balahissa fortress, 
which is where they should have been. The problem was that the army had been gazumped by Shah Shuja, who wanted the fortress for himself and his 800 wives and retainers. Lieutenant Vincent Eyre, he was one of the few British survivors of the Afghan disaster. He described the cantonments as an undertaking defying rule and precedent. He makes this clear in his memoirs. The position fixed upon for our magazine and cantonments was a piece of low swampy ground, commanded on all sides by hills or forts, none of which was occupied by the British. The perimeter, nearly two miles around, was far too long to be manned effectively by the garrison, while the watery ground was hopeless for the quick movement of artillery or cavalry. In tactical terms, the army committed the same blunder in 1839 as uh, ISAF forces did when they invaded Afghanistan in 2001 by deploying smallish detachments in isolated defensive garrisons. Nevertheless, wives, families were sent for, officers' wives and families, of course, and everyone occupied themselves with turning Kabul into a typical imperial outpost with polo matches, horse racing, cricket, ice skating, amateur theatricals, and tea parties. What they didn't know, that all the while Akbar Khan, the favorite of Dost Muhammad's 54 children, was plotting their downfall. The decision was taken to leave half a dozen regiments in Kabul to defend Shah Shuja. The Bombay army was to be withdrawn by the Berlin Pass, and General John Keane would take a portion of the Bengal contingent into India by the route of Jalalabad and the Khyber Pass. A brigade under General Robert Sale marched eastward, but he came under heavy attack on the road and only got as far as Jalalabad, where he decided to garrison his troops. One of the worst mistakes, apart from launching the invasion itself and building the cantonments in the wrong place, was this abrupt withdrawal of the major part of the army of the Indus, leaving only token detachments behind. So, in spite of the jolly times that were had by all, no regrets were heard in the ranks at the prospect of leaving Afghanistan. General Keane himself, as he was preparing to depart Kabul, he turned to Durand and, and uttered the fateful words, I cannot but congratulate you on quitting the country, for mark my words, it will not be long before some signal catastrophe takes place. By the autumn of 1841, the party was well and truly over. Akbar Khan and his followers were laying siege to cantonments. The commander in Kabul, General William Elphinstone, was an incompetent, gravely ill man who had last seen active service at Waterloo. In April 1841, the 59-year-old Elphinstone, gout-stricken, with one arm in a sling, had made most of the journey from Calcutta to Kabul in a palanquin, perhaps a fitting uh, symbol of the state of British India's Afghan policy. Indeed, what on earth was Elphinstone doing in Afghanistan? Who had sent them there and why? The person who was instrumental in dispatching him to Kabul was Fitzroy Somerset, the future Lord Raglan. Raglan was military secretary of the Horse Guards, and he exercised considerable influence over army appointments. John Hobhouse, who was president of the East India Company's Board of Control, had raised strong objections to Elphinstone's candidacy. He argued the general was too weak, too ill, and too weak-minded to take on the task. But Raglan was a friend of Elphinstone's and also the Duke of Wellington, who declined to support Hobhouse's reservations. It will be recalled, perhaps, that Raglan also bore responsibility for the charge of the Light Brigade at Balaclava. 
that amazing Victorian heroine, Lady Florentia Sale, had little sympathy for Elphinstone. She complained in her diary that uh, should there be a rising in Kabul, we would be entirely without the means of defense. And later, when the Afghans were slaughtering anyone they could lay their hands on, she wrote, no military steps have been taken to suppress the insurrection. October 41, then, marked the fatal turning point in the fortunes of the British force in Kabul. In late September of that year, the government's envoy and Auckland's right-hand man, William McNaughton, had summoned the tribal chiefs to his residence one evening for a meeting. Much to his regret, he's told them, the British authorities in India, and this was under the new Peel government, had embarked on a cost-cutting exercise. There would be a reduction in the subsidies paid to the tribes for safeguarding the roads and passes to India. The shortfall was caused in no small measure by the expense of keeping Shah Shuja and his followers in style in the Balahisar. This was the next big mistake, for on hearing the news, the tribal chiefs rose and left McNaughton's residence in silence. The first outbreak of rebellion, in fact, was not in Kabul. It took place in Charikar, a garrison about 40 miles to the north, where a regiment of Shah Shuja's Indian troops, composed largely of Gurkhas, was sent to keep the local tribesmen in check. They were deployed in a small fort near the town, along with a contingent of women and children. The fort was three miles from the headquarters of Major Eldred Pottinger, the political agent, a remarkable young officer who had organized the successful defense of Herat against the Persians. The bulk of the regiment were youths who had never heard a shot fired in anger. When the tribes rose against them, they found themselves garrisoned in unfinished and highly vulnerable barracks. The Gurkha adjutant, Colonel John Horton, described the perilous state the garrison faced, thanks to a lack of proper planning. It was apparent to us that in the event of an attack, he said, water would be a great difficulty, but we were led to believe that such an event was impossible. Far from it. The attack began on the 3rd of November, shortly before the Kabul insurgents began laying siege to the cantonments. Less than a fortnight later, the only two British survivors of Charikar rode into Kabul in the dead of night. Pottinger was badly wounded in the leg, and Horton had lost his right hand to an Afghan sword. What had happened was that after a week of fighting, the garrison's water supplies were indeed depleted. And ten days later, when the gunners and most of the Muslim troops had deserted, Pottinger took the decision to abandon the fort and make a dash for Kabul. The column rode out under cover of darkness. But when they reached the first stream, the troops broke into a wild scramble for water and the force rapidly disintegrated. While Pottinger and Horton struggled ahead along a secluded mountain path, what was left of the regiment followed the main road and got within 20 miles of Kabul, where they were destroyed. The last British officer left alive, the regimental doctor, held on until three miles of Kabul when he too was killed. In Kabul, the political and military officials deceived themselves into believing that the situation could somehow be brought under control. But the army did almost nothing to contain the mob that was now attacking the cantonments on a daily basis. The first high-profile victim was Alexander Burns, who was murdered by a rampaging mob outside his house. As late as 18th of November, McNaughton was still in denial. He wrote a note saying the situation was not one of, quote, immediate apprehension. This was another fatal mistake. The inhabitants of Kabul held their breath after Burns' murder in anticipation of full retribution. 
The chief rebels themselves expected the British to take vengeance on them for this outrage. Once the news got out of Burns's murder, none of the chieftains ventured from his home for 24 hours for fear of being spotted as one of the ringleaders. Furthermore, the tribesmen had been incited to riot to give a warning to the British that they and their puppet king were not welcome in Afghanistan. The Afghans hoped that the British might be persuaded to pack up and abandon the country by the following spring. And for what I've been able to find in my research, the uprising was not meant to be taken as a military challenge to the government. It was Elphinstone's response to the news of Burns's murder in a letter to McNaughton, lived across the road but sent him a letter, that set the garrison on a course of self-destruction. He said, we must see what the morning brings and then think what can be done. Two days later, the die was cast. McNaughton received a letter bearing the signatures of Elphinstone, uh, his highly unpopular second-in-command, Brigadier John Shelton, Brigadier Thomas Anquetil, and Lieutenant Colonel Robert Chambers. The four senior officers in Kabul appealed to the envoy, to McNaughton, to open a dialogue for the army's immediate withdrawal to India. This at a time when the road remained open between the cantonments and the Balahisar. Moreover, the army still had more than 4,000 men fit for service, as well as a year's worth of ammunition of all kinds. The government called it right when they later stated in a paper that, quote, the ultimate triumph of the enemy must be attributed to the division of the force, the lack of troops outside the defensive works of the cantonments, and the early loss of the unprotected commissariat stores, which were a few hundred yards outside the perimeter wall, quite incredibly. So Elphinstone agreed on a retreat, having been given undertakings by Akbar Khan of a safe escort back to India. McNaughton set off to negotiate the terms of the garrison's withdrawal with Akbar Khan. The two men met by the banks of the Kabul River, where McNaughton was immediately set upon and murdered by the Afghan chief. Those who witnessed the attack spoke of Akbar Khan drawing a pistol from his belt, one of the set that McNaughton had sent him the day before as a gift, and firing point-blank at the envoy. McNaughton's head was impaled on a public square, and that evening some thoughtful soul came out and replaced his glasses. Major Eldred Pottinger, the second most senior civilian in Kabul, was designated McNaughton's successor and to the hero of Herat fell the unhappy task of negotiating the army's retreat. Pottinger was still bedridden, recovering from the wound he received at Charika. He made no pretense of being honored by his appointment. He said, I was hauled out of my sick room and obliged to negotiate for the safety of a parcel of fools who were doing all they could to ensure their destruction, but they would not hear my advice. On a bitterly cold January morning in 1842, the British and Indian troops, and here you can see the route they took, their families and camp followers marched out the gates of Kabul with six inches of fresh snow on the ground, never to be seen again. Once more, Lady Sale called it right. Most dutifully do we shut our eyes to our probable fate, she said. Each day brought a steady attrition of human life on the 60-mile trek to Jalalabad as the Afghans swept down, hacking and shooting the column to pieces. According to one contemporary source, the snow ran red with English blood. Within a week, with the exception of a handful of hostages, 
the entire force lay dead or dying in the snow. Dr. William Bryden, a young Scottish surgeon with the Army of the Indus, was the only European to reach the safety of Jalalabad. Bryden was losing blood from wounds to the knee and to his left hand, and he had also received a near-fatal blow to the head from an Afghan knife. He was saved only by a copy of Blackwood's magazine rolled up under his forage cap. It's said that Akbar Khan allowed Bryden to escape to tell the tale of the army's annihilation. The result of this misadventure was the worst single military disaster the Raj had ever suffered. A column of some 16,000 people, troops, their families, camp followers, massacred on the retreat from Kabul within the space of a week or less. Shah Shuja was duly assassinated and Dost Muhammad was later restored to the throne. The new Governor-General, Lord Ellenborough, was determined to rescue British honour at any price. This was, by the way, an inherent feature of his character, a man who had, a few years before, fought a duel with a German nobleman to avenge his wife's adultery. Ellenborough sent an expeditionary force, the Army of Retribution, might ring something like Operation Enduring Freedom, into Afghanistan. Retaliation was swift and deadly. General George Pollock forced the Khyber Pass with 14,000 men and delivered Akbar Khan a resounding defeat in two hard-fought battles. The army then marched on to Kabul and reached the city gates in September, where gallows were erected and any Afghan found bearing arms was invited to mount the scaffold. For good measure, the great bazaar of Kabul was burnt to the ground. In October, Kabul was evacuated and the army fought its way back to India. But in spite of efforts to create an impression of triumph, British prestige had been dealt a very severe blow. As early as May 1842, before Akbar Khan released the handful of hostages he was holding, the Times correspondent in Constantinople reported that the recent disasters in Afghanistan had already begun to affect British influence in the Muslim world. He said, since the last overland intelligence, it has been asserted on more than one occasion by Turkish authorities that the late reverses of England had suddenly reduced her to the place of a third-rate power. The Times also summed up the war in these words. This nation spent £15 million on a worse-than-profitable effort after self-aggrandizement in Afghanistan and spends £30,000 a year on a system of education satisfactory to nobody. That was in 1842. If you add a few knots, you might, you might take on more relevance. Once satisfied that British integrity had been restored, Ellenborough took to celebrating in a grand style. A great ceremonial arch was set up at the Sutledge River, behind which stood two mile-long rows of no less than 250 painted elephants. Ellenborough himself had uh, taken a personal hand in, in decorating these beasts. By Christmas, the entire army of retribution was back on British soil, and there was feasting, festivities in the giant tents, after dinner speeches, and then the year 1842 was brought to a close with a grand military display in the presence of Ellenborough, the commander-in-chief, scores of British and Sikh dignitaries, and a supporting cast of 40,000 men and 100 guns. After the review, which passed before General Sir Charles Napier, who was soon to become the conqueror of Sindh, the British troops received double rations and 92,000 pounds of food were distributed to the sepoy regiments. One contemporary observer wrote, not since Waterloo had British arms cause to celebrate so signal a triumph. 
Well, there was one incident, only one incident, to mar all this grandeur and magnificence. And that was um, the elephants, perhaps sensing in their wisdom the absurdity of the occasion, refused to trumpet on command. As for the leading military figures, Elphinstone was up for a court-martial, and the matter had even come to the attention of Queen Victoria, who lamented the unfortunate General Elphinstone. Elphinstone was held responsible for the disasters, and the commander-in-chief was directed to relieve the general of his command. Unfortunately, Elphinstone had already been relieved of his command, not by the commander-in-chief, but by an act of God. Shelton didn't get off so lightly. Ellenborough had the general placed under arrest and court-martialed at Ludiana. As far as General Napier was concerned, Shelton was the culprit responsible for the entire disaster. Napier said, It seems to me that to Shelton may be traced the whole misfortune of this army. And he went so far as to suggest that Shelton ought to have been shot as the author of all ill. Shelton was a very courageous and capable general, but he also was an extremely morose, obstinate, and cantankerous man, totally lacking respect for Elphinstone. This hostility between the chief and his second-in-command effectively undermined the decision-making process in Kabul at the worst possible time. Moreover, Shelton refused to order his men in the Balahissar, where he was holding out with a contingent, to disperse the mob surrounding Burns's house, much less to relieve the siege of the cantonments. However, the government and the army were in no mood for recriminations, which would only focus more unwanted attention on the Afghan disaster. Shelton returned to England to take command of the 44th, which had been wiped out in a famous last stand at Gandamak, and was being raised practically afresh. The following year, he was thrown from his horse during a parade and died of his injuries three days later. It's perhaps a reflection of his belligerence and arrogance toward the troops that his own men turned out on the parade ground to give three cheers upon hearing of his death. In 1850, Sir John Hobhouse, president of the Board of Control, gave evidence before the House of Commons in which he proclaimed himself responsible for the war. He said, the Afghan war was done by myself and the court of directors had nothing to do with it. The reason for this was allegedly the inveterate hostility of Dost Mohammed to the British, which was simply not true. What had happened was that Burns's reports were edited and effectively falsified, deleting references to the Emir's desire for friendship with Britain. Burns's last letter to McNutton spoke of the Emir as a man of ability who has at heart a high opinion of the British nation. If half you must do for others were done for him, he would abandon Russia and Persia tomorrow. This letter was omitted altogether from the government blue book. It later emerged that Hobhouse himself had doctored Burns's letters. He made it appear that Burns had reported hostility on the part of Dost Mohammed and recommended going to war. Burns himself became aware of the falsification as early as November 1839 when he sent home the true copies to his brother James. He said in an accompanying letter, the exposition of the Governor General's views in the parliamentary papers is pure trickery. But the fraud was not exposed to the public until 1861. In that year, the outspoken Scottish MP Alexander Colquhoun Sterling Murray Dunlop demanded Lord Palmerston open a formal inquiry into the forgeries. He was shouted down by the establishment from the Times, which said that the government should consider this a closed matter after 20 years, to Disraeli, 
who also argued the subject was unworthy of debate. Burns's brother, James, fired off a series of angry letters to Palmerston, who had been Foreign Secretary at the time of Burns's mission to Kabul. The final reply from Downing Street said, Lord Palmerston has no wish to enter into further discussion on this subject. Dost Muhammad died in 1863, definitely one of Afghanistan's most outstanding and popular rulers, and the country was once more plunged into chaos. Britain again watched in panic while successive Afghan rulers apparently intrigued with Russia. They believed that this posed an even greater threat of a Russian invasion with Afghan connivance. You can see that there's a bit more justification this time in their fears. If you look at the dates of Russian annexation of territory moving closer and closer and closer, it doesn't mean by, it doesn't mean by no means that they're planning to invade, but they were certainly putting pressure on, on British India. And then at last, in 1878, the government's patience was at an end, and the British once again sent an army into Afghanistan. The Second Afghan War was largely another exercise in futility. No sooner had Kabul and Kandahar been taken, an outbreak of tribal rebellion forced the British to fight a desperate battle at Maiwand to extricate themselves from the country. The Treaty of Gandamak left Britain nominally in control of Afghan foreign policy, but in exchange for money, arms, and military support for the Amir. It was somewhat ironic that this treaty was signed uh, on the spot where the last remnants of the 44th were wiped out in the First War. A British resident, the whole thing was about having a British resident in Kabul. So Louis Cavagnari was accepted at Kabul, and he was promptly murdered. And that was when Lord Roberts led his famous march from Kabul to Kandahar, where he won a decisive victory over the Afghans. Then the third Afghan war, which broke out in 1919 and ended that same year with the total defeat of the Afghan forces. This comes from an Italian newspaper, so I suspect it's accurate. The emir chose to ignore this defeat, this development, and he proclaimed victory. He distributed medals to his generals, he erected a triumphal arch in Kabul, and he exacted from the British precisely what he was after, the return of Afghan sovereignty. So we've yet to see the outcome of the Fourth Afghan War, which I personally think is winnable, but certainly not by military means alone. But I think we have to accept that the historical precedents are not very encouraging. And I think I'll stop there. It's early, so there's plenty of time for questions if you have any. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 22nd of July, 2010, at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyrighted at the National Archives. All rights reserved.